Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to go behind the headlines to discuss some of the biggest stories taking place in the world's most fascinating region. I'm Andrew People. Well, any league table of the world's top tech sector nations would surely include South Korea near the top. And in this episode, we're going to look at how the Northeast Asian nation has achieved this status in recent decades, in the process becoming home to tech giants such as Samsung and LG Electronics, while transforming the nature of its economy. Of course, despite its success in tech, South Korea is also a country that exists under the high threat of cyber attacks from its neighbour North Korea and elsewhere. We'll ask how the country is dealing with such threats and collaborating with other nations and regions in developing the world's tech infrastructure. For this episode, we're once again partnering with the Centre for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance. And joining us for this discussion today are Dr. Robin Klingler-Vidra. She's a reader in International Political Economy at King's College London, and her research has focused on how East and Southeast nations have developed their tech sectors. And also joining us is Dr. Michael Reiterer. Michael is a former EU ambassador to Korea, and he's now the Distinguished Professor for International Security and Diplomacy at the Institute for European Studies in Brussels. Michael has specialised in the EU's relations with Korea and Japan during his career, particularly in the security realm. Thank you both so much for joining us today. It's much appreciated. Robin, could you please kick us off with a quick bit of historical background. How did South Korea become such a strong tech sector nation, one of the world's leading nations in this sector? First, thanks for having me on, Andrew. So I think, as you mentioned in the setup, it's incredible the rise that Korea has had. And so maybe just to put some sort of figures or context, to say that just in 2020, for instance, Korea broke into the top 10 of the Global Innovation Index. It ranks fourth, according to the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Rankings for R&D and commercialization. And one of the areas that I'm focused on that we've seen a tremendous increase in terms of startup activity. So Seoul, for instance, just reached the top 20 globally in terms of startup ecosystems in the startup genome ranking. So the ascent of Korea, both in terms of national innovation capacity and R&D, and now as a Silicon Valley styled hub, let's say, has really come into, say, maturity in, in recent years. But maybe one of the drivers of that and one of the giveaways or foreshadowing was that it ranks so high in R&D and commercialization. And so this R&D historically led by the large firms, so Korea's Chebel, which sort of loosely means conglomerate and sort of family. The collaboration and the competition around Korea's Chebel firms like Samsung or Hyundai or LG they invested so significantly in research and development and really pushed up the innovation capacity across the country that in many ways can be thought of as the backbone of what's driven Korea's ascent. It'd be great to talk more about that research and development in a moment, but I just wanted to ask, if you go to Korea now, how technologically advanced is day-to-day -day life? How would a typical Korean person use tech in their daily lives? And how many of the apps and so on that they use would be homegrown? Well, around the world, so many of us are using Korean tech. But in Korea, homegrown apps such as Coupang and Naver, for instance, are hugely popular in the country. 
smart sort of appliances. I mean, often when we think about tech, we think about information technology. But if we think about more industrial and innovation as sort of process and advances across sectors, you have Hyundai that's world leading in technologies related to shipping and, and marine smart appliances by, say, LG, phone, you know, Samsung leading there, and also semiconductor capacity as well. So in so many of the world frontier areas in technology, Korean products are right there at the fore. In Korea itself, thinking about fieldwork that I've done over the years, you'd be hard-pressed to not use one of the tech products or systems or servers or processes that are developed by one of the large firms on a daily basis. So Korean homegrown tech is one at the world frontier and two omnipresent in the country. Yeah, I would just add from experience of four years of living there, if you're in the subway, everybody stares in the iPhone. They are playing, they are watching dramas, so relatively silent. If you are Shopping, you normally you order online, which was very convenient during the pandemic. And when I got the tour of LG in their showroom for the future, when you go to bed, you put your clothes in the cupboard and in the morning, it will be clean, dry and no smell at all. Fantastic. I think that's a good one. If I could just add in the subway, for instance, I remember being really shocked, you know, coming from the UK to Korea. And seeing the company like Tesco, right, the grocery store chain that had the ability for riders on the subway to use their smartphone to order their grocery products while using the sort of storefront, if you will, of the glass walls when the trade would come in. So just to reiterate Michael's point, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. Driving home with a Korean friend, you enter the garage, he parks the car, you walk to the elevator. Is already waiting for you. You get into the elevator and it stops at the right floor and the door to the apartment is open. Magic. It does sound magic. <laughs> Let's dig a little bit more into how South Korea got to this level of advancement. Robin, you referred to this stress that corporate Korea has put on research and development historically. How did that come about in the first place? How, how did that culture of R&D become so important? And what sort of role did Korea's government play in encouraging that? So the large firms, the Chebel, sort of Samsung, Hyundai, LG, SK, these firms started to really invest in capacity building from the 1960s. And this is driven by the Economic Planning Board. And it's very much about creating national champions, an encouragement to compete and the government sort of, quote unquote, picking winners, but doing it well, which is something that governments all over the world struggle to do. But having some internal competition between the large firms really motivated the investment in R&D, which was going to drive their own ability to compete domestically and then to go out as a national champion and compete on the international stage. So how did the government do that? Well, the government particularly in the pre-democratization era, was a huge funder of research and development and put a massive amount of money into the capability building and R&D, both processes and the money to do it for the large firms. 
in the last 20 plus years since the East Asian financial crisis, where you've really seen an uptick, let's say, in the J-curve or the hockey stick in terms of Korea's global ranking, there's also been, from the government's perspective, a fostering of an open innovation ecosystem where the government is pairing the Chebel, the large firms, at the center of initiatives that is linking with academia and with startups. And so to stick with our thinking about physically what you see around the country, you'll see the centers for the, say, creative economy and innovation, the CCEIs. Each of these CCEIs have a core Chebel partner. So we'll have Hyundai or we'll have Samsung, and they're both the partner and the funder. And then they act as a sort of incubator or an accelerator that has a number of entrepreneurs coming in and building startups around the particular theme or area of competition that uh, Chebel is competing in. So the government has funded R&D and then it's sort of moved to this model of fostering these open innovation systems, providing funding now for a startup ecosystem, and then also fostering a creative mindset since Park Yun-hee took office in 2014 when she implemented her creative economy action plan. And just to say that this was something that you physically see in billboards when you're driving, particularly around Seoul, this idea of the elevating of the idea of being creative and entrepreneurial and innovative. And if I may just link to that, that was one of the thrusts of the Ministry of SME and Startups push for the last four or five years is to overcome perhaps a tendency to have young people want to work for the large firms or to be doctors or lawyers. And I'll just share, if I may, my all-time favorite interview quote. My co-author and I had an interviewee who was telling us, well, in Korea, the government has really worked to overcome this residency to be disruptive and to be an entrepreneur. And they said, and this is why, because in Korea, to be an entrepreneur, you have to kill two women. And at this point, I was, you know, on the edge of my seat. So I would say, what? So you have to kill two women. By being an entrepreneur, you will kill your mother through the embarrassment that that will cause because she can't now say that her son, and yes, mostly male, which we'll get to later, I think. But then you'll also kill your future wife through the lost earnings. And so the government, beginning in the late 1990s, but really in the last seven years, has pushed and I think has done a quite good job of encouraging a more creative, risk-taking, innovative society. So the role of the government in sort of hardware and thinking about funding and physical space, but also the softer elements as well. It's fascinating because I guess a lot of free market economists would say this sort of top-down government-led approach, you know, won't work. It's better to have things working on a free market basis with entrepreneurs from the ground up innovating and selling their products. Why do you think it's worked in Korea all these years? Michael, I wonder if you had a perspective on that first. Well, I think the creation of a ministry of SMEs was a signal. And I think that helped. And on the other hand, the privatization of research. I mean, now about 80% of money which is put into research is actually private. And creating access to risk capital to new entrepreneurs, I think was an important step. But I agree with Robin, it's still a problem of prestige. You don't work for 
a chapel and you don't work for the government and you are not a professor. But it's changing now, not least due to the fact that also those who have finished the major universities, the sky as, as they are called, uh, Seoul, Korea University and Yonsei University, it's difficult to find a job. And they are pushed into a sort of entrepreneurship. And what is significant uh, sign in Korean society, you find now Korean drama series which are dealing with becoming an entrepreneur. And if an issue makes it in the drama series, it has landed in the society. So Robin, then how vibrant is the sector in Korea these days in terms of innovation and startups and so on? And the second point, you referred to it a bit earlier, but in terms of gender balance and that kind of thing, how diverse is the sector, the sorts of people that are working within tech in Korea? So the startup sort of ecosystem in Korea has really come into its own. As I mentioned earlier, it's pierced into the top 20 of startup ecosystems globally, Seoul in particular. So it's incredibly vibrant. What's perhaps different in Korea to startup ecosystems elsewhere is that the founders are hugely technically capable and experienced in many cases. They have spent years working for one of the Chebel, and they're quite senior engineers. And then perhaps in their 40s, they then start up, which is a bit different, right, than the Silicon Valley dropping out of university, as say Mark Zuckerberg would have done. So the talent and the sort of life experiences and, and abilities is different. What I think really needs to be elevated and is certainly on the policy roster, and it's, it's very much aware and on the agenda, is, as we mentioned, the, the gender balance. So for instance, Ramon Pacheco-Pardo and I are doing a study now of you know, who are the members of Korea's ecosystem. We have a number of unicorns. I mentioned Kupang and Naver before. And we have looked at all of the founders of the 260, approximately, Korean startups who have raised or have achieved evaluation that puts them at at least $10 million. So there's 260 founders in this cohort of the, say, highest performing entrepreneurs in Korea. And out of these 260 founders, a whopping eight are female. So the sector is sort of mono experience and gender, if you will, at the moment, and having the quite technical experience and not a huge number of female founders. Michael, what do you think stopping Korean women from having a greater involvement in this sector? Well, I think it's the position of, of, of women in Korean society, well, it is changing, but still slowly. But it's an untaped potential. And in the service sector, especially related to cyber issues, you see an increase and a stronger involvement. But the social structure is still rather conservative and there are not enough social facilities, childcare, and also the expectation that once you get married, uh, you should stay at home, which has the effect that uh, people simply don't get married, which then has an impact on demography and all the problems associated with it. Very expensive housing and everything then adds up to a rather unhealthy situation. And 
I think this is something which the next government will have to put more emphasis, but changing social attitudes is normally a generational thing, even in fast-changing Korea. Absolutely. Now, Robin, the US and China, as we know, may be drifting apart in many ways, but one similarity right now appears to be the respective government's ambivalent relationship, if you like, with big tech companies. In China, in particular this year, we've seen some big moves to reduce the power and influence. In Korea, those big companies, the Samsungs, the LGs, and so on that we've talked about, play a huge role in the tech sector, as we know. But of course, it's been a controversial role over the years as well. Samsung, we've seen various corruption cases come to the courts and the leaders of the company finding themselves sometimes even having jail time. So what's the sort of relationship really between these big tech companies and the broader population and the broader sort of political atmosphere in Korea these days? So I think maybe in this sense, Korea was sort of ahead of the US and China in having some desire to distance. And I think there's a few key inflection points. So democratization, so 1987 being a key moment where the separation or at least need for public perceived separation between the sort of cozy relationship between Chebel leadership and political leadership begins. But then really in the throes of the East Asian financial crisis, the Chebel had a moment of not being able to provide for the economic and social purpose of the model in a way that they had before. So in the late 90s, where the Chebel had been a key provider, if not the key provider, of high-quality, steady, high-impact employment, because of the East Asian financial crisis and the challenges that it presented to Korean industry, a huge number of redundancies and layoffs were necessary. And so this at least undermined, if not shattered, this idea that the Chebel were a key not only innovator and capacity builder, but also a key employer. And so from the late 90s government policy, and you see in government rhetoric as well, a sort of distancing from large Korean firms and wanting to balance and to diversify who the government supports. So for instance, what I mentioned before in the CCEIs, you have the Chebel at the center, but then they're part of a system. And so the support for innovation, for tech, in many ways goes through channels that are supportive of the Chebel, but are not directly to them. So we had actually an interview with a senior policymaker from the Blue House been told this idea that startups support the innovative DNA of the Chebel and that the government supports startups and supports this open innovation ecosystem as a means of supporting the Chebel, but not to directly having this link. As you mentioned, of course, Park Geun-hee being the latest example of a president who had to step down because of the relationship, perceived relationship with leadership. So if you look in the parallels, as you mentioned, of China and, and say Alibaba and Jack Ma and this crackdown that we're seeing now, it's been a more gradual, but a more sustained distancing between Chebel and the state for at least 20 years. May I just add one element, I think, which is you had a unique for the Chabols. They made a big contribution to nation building. If you take Samsung today, they are still 
50-60% of GDP is actually produced by one single company. You find only a comparable situation in Japan, but this is something which is overlooked, this political nation-building role, which was, I think, at the time instrumental that Korea developed from one of the poorest countries in the world in the 1960s uh, to one of the leading nations today. You both touched on it there a bit, but my next question was really about how Korea then compares to other leading tech sector nations in the region, be it Japan, be it China itself, Taiwan. How do you see that model differing in Korea, or is it quite similar to what we've seen elsewhere? Robin, some thoughts on that, please. Korea, in comparison to say the, the rest of Northeast Asia, does look a bit different. So Taiwan, we can separate maybe from China, Japan, and Korea, because the approach of the Taiwanese state was one of supporting small firms, small amounts of funding, and at least until Chiang Kai-shek and that era came to an end, not wanting to have too much sort of rival power in the private sector. And so Taiwan was one of SMEs and small firms, with venture capital, of course, growing precipitously from the 1970s because of the key role of some lead figures like KT Lee, the minister without portfolio. Korea and Japan, as Michael mentioned, are often sort of put together as this sort of developmental state model where the state is working closely with the large firms. But Korea and Japan do look qualitatively different in a number of ways. The Japanese model was more around the MITI, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, organizing the large firms to come together in consortium to advance on a particular set of skills or sector or product like a semiconductor or an alternative PC to the dominant American model in the 1980s. But as researchers like Alice Amston and others have shown, the Korean approach was one of the state working with particular chebels as the national champion in particular areas. And you know, as I mentioned, the startups have been breathing this new life into Chebel innovation. But I think, Michael, what he mentioned about the social purpose of the Chebel and the nation building is one that is spot on. And, you know, you can't sort of overemphasize the importance of that enough. I mean, just to say, each year, the Korean Fair Trade Commission publishes the list of Chebel. And there's around each year 60, but there's five that really dominate and really, as Michael mentioned, will comprise a lot of the stock market value Samsung, Hyundai, the SK Group, LG, and Latte. In 2019, for example, there were 64 Chebel published by the FTC, and they have a whopping 2,284 affiliates. So the Chebel and the approach in Korea has been absolutely central. And now for the last 20 years, it's been shifting more towards this open innovation model, which we see also in Japan, but it comes from a different place. And this still results in, I would say, nationalistic attitude. What do I mean by that? Well, just if you recall, after the financial crisis, Kiat went bankrupt, basically, and it was taken over by Hyundai, which was the biggest merger in the automotive industry. But to keep it Korean, the same is happening now when you look at Korea Air and Asiana. Asiana was in trouble, and instead of selling it internationally, Korea Air will take over, I think, by the end of 2022. It should be done. Look at the shipbuilding industry, which is in trouble, and we see a lot of state aid. 
So I think this is linked to this historic role. Nationalism is quite strong in the economy. Michael, staying with you and switching to the topic of cyber theft and cyber attacks, South Korea's neighbor, North Korea, and its near neighbor, China, are countries that are often accused of carrying out such attacks. How serious a threat do you think that poses to South Korea? And what have been the main forms of cyber attack that we've seen on the country to date? According to studies and statistics, Korea ranks fifth in the world in terms of number of cyber attacks between 2006 and 2020. So that has led to raising of consciousness, of course. The government has moved in, providing protection, but they must say it took them some time to get out of the fixation on the military security sector, also to the industrial sector. But I think that has been overcome now, this strong division. And by 2019, 2020, the national cybersecurity strategy with a national cybersecurity basic plan is addressing that situation. You can look back, I think, to 2003 when there was a simple internet disruption to 2008, 9 when this distributed denial of services started to become popular. There were attacks hacking on the banking system back in 2011, which resulted in the National Cybersecurity Master Plan. So you can always see if there's an action, there is a reaction by the government. Cybersecurity training and education centers were provided then by the government. But WannaCry ransom attacks, are of course, important in Korea, and also the Nayana attack, all ransom criminal attacks. And I think one of the highlights, so to speak, was the attack during the Olympic Games at the opening ceremony. That was the Winter Olympics you're talking about there. Yeah, so that was an eye-opener for all those who hadn't opened their eyes yet. And I think that gave rise, as I mentioned, to the National Cybersecurity Strategy which is now implemented. Uh, the Koreans are also doing fairly regularly studies on the number of cyber attacks on the country. What is interesting now to see is that the number of attacks is increasing, but the protection is also increasing. So damage done is actually decreasing in relation to numbers. But as this is an area which is mo moving rapidly, and Korea is one of the best connected societies, as we have discussed. The exposure of the country is tremendous. It is also, not to forget, technically still at war with North Korea. And we have the cyber attacks also from China and also from Russia, where for political reasons, Korea is rather reluctant, is to take strong countermeasures against states. And that's due to the geopolitical situation. And I think this is also one of the reasons why Korea is quite interested in its discussion with the European Union, how to make sure that you can ascertain who is the attacker. And then if you dare to take countermeasures. So Korea is not taking countermeasures yet but was very interested when the European Union took measures against North Koreans, 
against Chinese last year. That's something they would like to learn. And from the geopolitical point of view, I think it would be in their interest to have a sort of multilateral system where a group of countries would agree and defend itself, and then you can become part of a group and you don't have to stick out vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis Russia. Well, you've touched on it there a bit, but there there has been quite close cooperation between the EU and South Korea on this area, on cybersecurity. Can you just talk us through what that means in practice and what the practical difficulties are with such cooperation? The European Union and Korea have started in 2013 the first step, which is cyber dialogue. I think by now there are, I would say, four or five areas of cooperation which have been established. The first one is to make sure that there is cyber resilience. This is part of the dialogue. It's information sharing on risk management. It is also joint exercises, scenario planning, and also to have closer cooperation within international fora like the United Nations, where there is a sort of rather heated discussion how to deal with the cyber world, whether it should be more or less a self-regulatory system like the open internet, or whether there should be an increase of international treaties and a sort of state-managed system within the United Nations. So these are two groups, and the European Union and Korea are in the group which would like to maintain an open and secure internet. A second area of cooperation is cyber conflict prevention. There you can have cooperation between the two for capacity building, capacity building with other partners, but also capacity building in the military and industrial sector. Then there is the link to cybercrime. Korea has taken the decision to join the so-called Budapest Convention, but is still in the process of adapting national legislation, which is unfortunately a rather long process. But we are on the way, and I think within the next one or two years, Korea will join the Budapest Convention. Then we have the important area of data protection. Privacy and adequacy. I think there, the European Union, with its GDPR, is a world leader. After having concluded an agreement on adequacy with Japan, the European Union and Japan already created the largest area in the world of same regulations for data protection, and that had a very strong pull factor. So talks with Korea to take this adequacy decision have been successfully concluded. It took about two or three years because Korea had to make changes. Major issue at the time was to make sure that the authority, which is watching over the data privacy, is independent. And their reorganization had to be done within Korea. But now the ball is basically in the court of the European Commission in order to take that decision, which would be another major step. And the next step then in the cooperation should be to extend that data protection in the area of privacy to the industrial area. The last area is, of course, emerging technologies. 
Now there are new challenges which we have to master linked to artificial intelligence, to quantum computing, and also the use of automatic weapons. I think these are all issues which come up now and will be part of the further cooperation. In the security area, Korea was chosen as a pilot partner in cooperation with cybersecurity. So also from the security angle, which, as I have said earlier, is very important for Korea. So I think we are there on a good track, but we have still in a few areas to make the step from assuring each other that we are on the same page, that we share the same values and that we want to achieve the same goals to move from that affirmative mood into the action mood. It's obviously a pretty comprehensive relationship that's developing there then. Robin, I I just wondered whether you have thoughts on the role of business in this and to your knowledge, to what extent are Korean businesses like Samsung, the big tech companies cooperating with government on cybersecurity? How's that working within the country? I think this is part of the MO, if you will. So thinking about how we got to have so much of a need for cybersecurity as an issue. The fact that there's 5G across the country and everyone is so connected came from the government's program with several of the Chebel to make that possible. So this is sort of part and parcel of the public and large firms and increasingly small as well, working along with, Michael mentioned, the Sky Universities as well, working together both for sort of demand and supply, if you will. And final question to both of you. We've obviously seen Western countries led by the US becoming increasingly wary of Chinese tech firms, whether it's on the infrastructure side with firms like Huawei and its 5G or apps like TikTok. What's South Korea's approach been on this? Are big Chinese tech firms like Tencent or Alibaba, are they prominent in Korea? What's the feeling within the country about Chinese tech? Well, I think Korea is best protected by its neighbor system. You are not Googling, basically, you are neighboring. And I think most of the Koreans, actually, I think 80 to 90% are using only neighbor as one of the big success stories of Korean entrepreneurs. It is also providing the protection and at the same time a sort of hurdle because you have to be Korean to fully use all the services. But I think this is protecting Korea quite strongly and is giving it a sort of edge. But at the end, the government is trying to reinforce that. There is also now a digital new deal which the government wants to implement in parallel to a green deal, which is inspired by the European Union. And I would see there a sort of merging with the history which we have discussed. This nationalistic, linguistic melange helps Korea to be sort of isolated, but every isolation is a danger, a danger for creativity, a danger for society. So there I would see some need to counterbalance this tendency. But overall, Korea is recognized as one of the major powers there. And if you look into the Indo-Pacific strategy, which the European Union published, you will find that Korea is one of the chosen countries, so to speak, to enter into a digital partnership agreement. 
and to join forces, which links back what I have said before. Robin, do you see Korea as being a partner to Western countries in that way, or are they too much in the orbit of China? I'd, I wouldn't say too much in the orbit of China. I think to build on Michael's point, the market is one that is sort of foreign dominated by Korean firms. And even when you do see sort of headlines and instances of crackdowns, I mean, there was the announcement that fintech has to be sort of licensed financially, but that isn't in the view of allowing more of an inroad for Chinese tech. And I think in many ways, in my view, the Korean tech and openness sort of mirrors the political allies and positioning. And so Korea geopolitically, strategically is more aligned with Western tech than with the Chinese. Well, thank you both very much indeed for talking us through this fascinating topic. It's been a real pleasure to have you both on the show today. I'd like to also at this stage thank our partners at CSDS once again. Thank you to Rebecca Bailey for producing this episode of Asia Matters. Thank you to Alex Lestrange as ever for the theme tune for our podcast. You can get in touch with us if you've got interesting thoughts or questions or follow-up ideas about what we've been discussing today or, frankly, anything else. We're on Twitter at Asia Matters Pod. Our email address is asiamatterspod at gmail.com. And we have a website at asiamatterspod.com. Thank you so much for listening today. After our summer break, we've got plenty of shows coming up this autumn. Thank you for listening today and goodbye.